0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: One thing I tell them is, after surgery, you f- externally you feel great. You know, you feel normal. The wounds are small, it's robotic. You feel like a new person, but the inside, the pelvic floor, everything is messed up. It is not healed. It is going to take several weeks to heal, at least six. So, say a person decides, oh, I'm feeling fine. I'm going to sit on the bicycle in three weeks. You're going to end up leaking because you are hurting something which is not healed. It has to be re-emphasized to them that this is a major surgery. It is not a minor surgery.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, spotify and at backtable.com now a quick word from our sponsor Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor home for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Venita Gaglani from Melbourne, Florida, where she's been treating patients with urinary incontinence for over 25 years. Welcome to the show, Venita. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So as somebody that takes care of patients that have received prostatectomy, I find a collaboration with our pelvic floor physical therapists to be invaluable. And I can't even count the number of times that I've told a patient, you know, these people are miracle workers, go hear them out, even if they're doing quite well. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to dig in on what exactly happens on, on the backside, if you will, when we refer our patients to go see somebody in pelvic floor physical therapy with expertise in urinary incontinence. So maybe we just start out with, you know, when the decision is made to receive a prostatectomy, When do you think is the appropriate time to engage somebody who treats urinary incontinence?
1: So my local urologist, this is how we work. A patient comes to me once before surgery. The reason being that if they come once before surgery, I teach them how to do the Kegels properly. A, But I also go through pre and post-surgical precautions, what will happen, what we need to do for an optimum outcome. And then I go a bit further into nutrition and hydration. The reason being that when people leak or anybody leaks, the first thing they do is stop drinking water. And when I educate them how necessary it is to drink water, to have an optimum outcome, to have a stream, to not have bladder spasms, so they are well aware going into surgery, the importance of drinking water and avoiding bladder aggravants because uh, most people are not used to drinking water. They drink fluids, but those fluids are not conducive to recovery because the urethra has been attached to the bladder. There's a wound over there. So when they drink sodas or too much coffee or tea, the wound just gets irritated, causing bladder spasms and consequently the leakage increases. All these are done prior to surgery so that When the patient comes back, A, they don't leak as much because they already know what to do, and B, they don't have to start from scratch trying to increase bladder capacity, decrease urgency or frequency.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess I've never thought about it like that. You know, your anastomosis is a raw wound and probably preferable to have water coming across it as opposed to coffee, tea, alcohol, and so forth. Now, kegels are clearly one of those things that I think can be a source of frustration or lack of knowledge on the patient's part and maybe just give us your spiel if you will on how to do a kegel exercise
1: so one of the interesting thing about kegel is first of all every patient is not a candidate for doing a kegel exercise they have to be david up if they are dry in the night and they have a stream then they can do a kegel but if they are wet in the night, so say they are leaking all night wearing several diapers, if I teach them a Kegel exercise, all they'll do is end up leaking more because the pelvic floor is very small. And obviously, they are trying to hold the pelvic floor strongly during the day to prevent leakage. And then sometimes, so then at that point, I have to teach them down training or reverse Kegels temporarily. I will downtrain them and then up train them. And then there are some people who they have this constant need. I have to go to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom, which disrupts the quality of life. Those people do zero Kegel temporarily. So to start with, once I evaluate the patient, then I will customize the treatment. The Kegel, the way I show patients is very different. Most people tell patients, stop urine midstream and i totally don't agree with that because the pelvic floor has type 1 fibers and type 2 so the whole muscle attaches from the rectum to the urethra so around the pelvic floor around the rectum is stronger than the pelvic floor around the urethra so if you will analyze a hand your thumb is stronger than your pinky if you keep bending your pinky it will hurt a lot but if you close the whole hand with the thumb then Your pinky will also close. So to start with, we start tightening the rectum gently like a camera shutter. And it has to be gentle because there are different grades of intensity they do with. But if they do it stronger, all they do is fatigue the muscle. So it's like squeezing a ball strongly. How many times can you squeeze a ball in your hand before it gets fatigued? So similar analogy. If you do it gently, then you get into the habit. Once you're able to do the pelvic floor properly, the Kegel, then we isolate the front, the one around the urethra. And then the outcome is like they are completely dry and completely dry means no pad, nothing should be able to do every activity without being worried about the bladder.
0: Okay. So that's really valuable intel, Venita. And to be quite honest, you know, I kind of fall into that camp. So, you know, again, when patients have decided they want surgery, today's July 7th, say it's going to be. I don't know, August 15th, I'll say about two weeks prior to your operation, we'd like you to start doing Kegel exercises. And I will tell them, you know, next time you go to the restroom, try to stop midstream, dial in onto what muscles you kind of engage there. And then maybe two to three times a day, do sets of 10 where you, you know, basically contract those muscles, hold for a few seconds, release. So I guess the, the message I'm giving to my patients is two weeks prior Three sets of 10 per day with a few seconds per hold. Maybe in your pre-surgical visit, can you talk a little bit about frequency, duration prior to the operation that you would advise?
1: Right. So when I have them do the Kegel, they have to do 10 quick repetitions, hold each for a count of one to two seconds, no more, and just do it six to eight sets a day, no more. Space it out every two hours. The reason, so there are different type of people. If you tell some people, if you tell them to do 10 sets, they will do 100 sets. And there are some people, if you tell them 10 sets, they'll do two. So if I tell about six to eight sets, they'll at least do five. And they're like, okay, I better do something. The reason initially, unless the surgery is like six to eight weeks away, I don't ask them to hold is. Because technically, when you ask somebody to hold, the gradation is different. Some will hold something lightly, like closing a flower. Some will squeeze harder and some will give all their might to it. Now, we are dealing with men. So more is better. Extra twist on the tap is better. Extra screw this is better. So when they do the Kegel, they don't do gently. They push it hard. Consequently, the muscle, the pelvic floor is as small as the hand muscle. And if you keep like squeezing your hand several times a day tightly, it is going to get fatigued. They continue with the Kegel. So then the muscle gets fatigued. When it gets fatigued, now they don't have a prosthetic sphincter. So A, the pelvic floor is fatigued. There is no sphincter to control the leakage. So they leak more. So that is why it's better to start slow. Because even if they increase it, they can only increase it so
0: much. And about how much prior to their operation do you typically advise that they start?
1: At least two to three weeks. If we start earlier than that, they forget. And if it is too close, they have not done enough. So minimum, I think three weeks is a good time because then they remember everything as they get closer to surgery.
0: So the next time I'm scheduling a patient for a prostatectomy, maybe I'll say them about three weeks prior to your operation, I'd like you to start doing sets of 10, six to eight times per day. And basically, it's going to be quick kegels, quick kegels where you're actually focusing on, you know, treating your rectum as a camera shutter or you're trying to conclude a bowel movement or something along that. Is that fair?
1: Yes, because when you tighten the rectum automatically, in case of the women, the vagina lifts up. In case of men, the penis and the scrotum lifts up. So they are doing a kegel. It's a complete kegel. It is not an isolated kegel of the front.
0: Okay, good. So that is that adequate, we would say, for kind of a leading up to surgery? Now they've had their operation, and I think typically, you know, anywhere from about five to seven days is fairly common to leave the catheter in. So let's talk about the counseling, at least at the urology kind of point of care, if you will, in terms of working with them to start the continence process.
1: So once the catheter comes out, See, there's a surgeon in Central Florida, Dr. Patel. His catheter comes out in five days. So then we have to wait a bit longer before we start therapy. But if a catheter is in for like seven days to nine days, then four or five days after the catheter is removed, we start resuming therapy. But this time when the patient comes back, I have to do a whole evaluation to see how much they're leaking. And most of the time, the most common complaint is that they are fine if they are sitting. It's when they stand up, they walk, that's when they start leaking. So the first thing I teach them, of course, is how to stand up without leaking, how to get out of the car without leaking, how to get out of a recliner without leaking. That is body mechanics because what happens is the natural tendency is Hold everything with all your might, your whole scrotum, rectum, everything, stand up and hope it doesn't leak. By the time they are three inches, four inches up from the chair, the urine is already gushing out. So, there's a certain type of a body mechanic you do by which they can hold the pelvic floor and yet let it sustain the strength so that when they stand up, the urine doesn't gush out. Let me uh, interrupt for a second. So, if I can go back to the pelvic floor, if you don't mind. Please. The pelvic floor, in men and women, it cannot be treated in the same way. See, in women, you can do kegel, kegel, kegel because many have had children. The pelvic floor is stretched out, it requires hypertrophy to close the gap. In men, the pelvic floor was not stretched out. It has the strength. What it lacks is the endurance to sustain a pushing bladder or sustain the prevention of urine coming out. So we are focusing on two different things initially. In women, we want to hypertrophy and strengthen. In men, we want to increase the endurance of the pelvic floor so that when they stand up and they walk to the bathroom, they do not leak. And that is a very big difference in men and women. And if you treat both the same, the outcome is not optimal. So first I focus on body mechanics, how to stand up without leaking. Then I work on behavior. You don't have to hold hard. The tighter you hold the pelvic floor, the more fatigued it gets. The more fatigued it gets, the less it can hold, the more you leak. So then we go into body mechanics and behavior initially. As they learn how to control the urine and they get drier, then we switch to the endurance mode of increasing the pelvic floor endurance so that in the end, they may lift a suitcase, work in the yard all day, play golf, and not leak even a drop. So that is how we follow. At least my pattern is that way. My protocol is that way. Let me re- rephrase it.
0: So with body mechanics, in my mind, that's going to be the way you get up. Maybe instead of just standing straight up with both feet down, you shift to the side or something along those lines. I'm not an expert in this, but can you just give us a little bit more information on that?
1: So. Usually, like I said, when say a person is leaking a lot, he's fine sitting. He stands up and urine gushes out, or it squirts out. Whatever. The thing is that men feel wetness, so they have to hold the pelvic floor sufficiently where it can close the gap where the urethra has been attached and not leak. So then I teach them how to like first relax the pelvic floor by breathing. Then I teach them to do a couple of quick Kegels sense the belly and then just stand up and walk. And that step takes a few days depending on how much they're leaking. If they're leaking a lot, it will take them a bit longer. But if it is not much leakage, then they get it quickly. So the idea is to first relax the pelvic floor because before a person starts standing up, if they're going to leak, the natural instinct is to hold tightly. You're leaking, you need to hold the pelvic floor tight. But It doesn't have the endurance to sustain the hold. So by the time you stand up, it's leaking. So the idea is to have an appropriate tightening of the pelvic floor to prevent leakage. Then I tell them, so many of them tell me, I'm dry in the night. Why? Because the pelvic floor is under conscious control. If something is under conscious control, when you're asleep, you're not making it tired. And the brain being precise, it knows how much to contract the pelvic floor so you don't leak. In the daytime, we say, here, let me help you. Let me tighten. And then they end up leaking more. So the body mechanics initially is very crucial for recovery.
0: Yeah, that's valuable intel. I'm gathering a a recurring theme of over-fatiguing of the pelvic floor. It resonates with me. I've, I've literally had patients that I've seen sitting in clinic and, you know, you can see that they're kind of contracting their entire body every five to seven seconds. It almost becomes like, you know, honestly, like a tick, it seems like. And it's interesting that, you know, you kinda mentioned that about the nighttime leakage. I guess I've always thought about it like, you know, now your your bladder urethra is like a funnel. And when you're recumbent laying down, especially if you do some hitching of the urethral anastomosis, you know, you've got this bladder container, but while you're up, the default gravity based direction for urine flow is out. So I guess clearly it's multifactorial where you have the the actual geometry of the bladder and the urethra, plus you have the brain kind of modulating your pelvic floor at night, subconsciously, of course, versus the daytime. So some of the things that I've gathered are once the catheter comes out, give it four or five days just to allow your body to equilibrate to not having a catheter. And then we start with exercises. The first being, you know, really these acute stress scenarios, standing up, walking, bending, lifting, etc. And then we actually go into, I would imagine a prescriptive Regimen for doing kegels. Is that correct?
1: Right. So it's not later. They do the body mechanics, they learn that, and then we go through the kegel again. And the reason being because once we show a kegel, sometimes when you go home, it transpires into something different. So we have to make sure that they are doing the kegel properly. And then we follow a regimen of the kegel. So the way I increase endurance is by holding. You know, when you hold something for long enough, gradually your muscles get stronger. So say you lift weights and you put your arm up and hold it for 10 seconds, it's probably your endurance will increase. Similarly, we start increasing the endurance, but we also focus on working with the lumbar muscles and the hip muscles because they all contribute to the pelvic floor strength. Since everything is attached to the pelvic floor, your rectal muscles are attached, your back muscles are attached, your hip muscles are attached. So as we strengthen those muscles, the pelvic floor, they increase the endurance. As the endurance increases, they can control the need to urinate for a longer period of time. They don't have to get up and go to the bathroom because initially when people leak, all they do is I'm leaking. The moment they stand up, they go to the bathroom, hope they'll urinate or even if they can, they go urinate a little bit. What happens then is that because they urinate so frequently, the bladder capacity decreases, which is fine if you're around the house. It's when you go out somewhere, then now you don't have a bladder capacity. So what are you going to do? That's when the urinary urgency and frequency starts. So then we have to address the behavior part, that every time you stand up, you really don't need to go to the bathroom, which is a challenge because the person says I'm leaking. so. Have to train them in the behavior part about why it is necessary to wait. Now, we cannot just tell a person, just wait for two hours. It doesn't happen. I don't know if anybody's had urinary urgency or frequency, but you just can't tell the brain, here, I'm not going to go. The brain will say, you are going to go to pee, whether you like it or not. But when we teach behavioral strategies, then we learn how to control the bladder. So then the behavior and the exercise part comes in next towards recovery.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, most people when they either are preemptively are going to go urinate, mitigate any discomfort, sensation of frequency, urgency, or certainly to have a leak episode. They go now a lot every 30 minutes, every hour. And that's actually going to be counterproductive in the long run, I suppose. So what does that counseling actually look like? You know, when you, when you have the urge to urinate or you're about to get up, you know, is this breathing exercises? Is this trying to distract yourself? Is this, you know, meditating? You know, what, is, what does that kind of practically look like?
1: So I focus a lot on breathing exercises. And I have several. I teach them, not just one. And there's a like a multifold outcome with the breathing exercise. Because A, it relaxes you mentally. If you're mentally relaxed, you're physically relaxed. If you're physically relaxed, your bladder is not spasming, your bladder is not spasming, your pelvic floor is not counteracting the spasm of the bladder. So all in all, everything works in the daytime like it works at night because we are trying to create an involuntary response to leakage like at night. You get up, you go to the bathroom, you don't think about it. In the daytime, it becomes a voluntary effort if you're leaking and we want to make it involuntary. So, of course, I instill some humor in it. I tell them, okay, your doctor took away your automatic car and gave you a stick shift. It is not going to get all right in a week, just like you cannot learn a car in a week. It is going to take its time. It is a muscle. Somehow, people think, or many men think that their urine issue should stop in a week, but it is a muscle, and the surgery took far longer than a knee or a hip surgery. So, why would it Your problems stop in a week. It will take several weeks for it to come back to its normal function. So breathing, absolutely. The more relaxed you are, the less you leak. Very counterintuitive. The more water you drink, the less you leak. The fatter the pad, more you leak. All counterintuitive. Very difficult to make the patient understand. But once they have confidence in you and once they can see they are progressing, the outcome is there.
0: So this last bit was interesting. The fatter the pad, the more you leak. Mm-hmm. Explain that a bit more, Vinita, if you don't mind.
1: So I have, I have had interesting people, and one of them told me I'm out of my mind. He's like, "I am leaking with a full diaper, and you want me to do what?" So what happens is the male anatomy is obviously not made for pads. So now you have this pad, which expands as you leak. So now you're sitting on a golf ball. Can you imagine sitting on not one, but four, five golf balls all day long of having a golf ball and walking with it or a tennis ball? That is what happens. So because of this feedback from the pad, the muscle is in a state of contraction all the time. And because it's a noxious stimuli. And when it's in a state of contraction, it never really learns how to relax. And because it doesn't relax, it gets fatigued. And because it gets fatigued, you leak.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting mechanism. And I would also think it's kind of like a child who has a walker. If they've got a walker that they're comfortable with, they're going to continue to use the walker or, the, or training wheels, you could say on a bike. If they've got their training wheels, they're going to keep using it. But at some point, you have to say, hey, let's get those training wheels off and Yes, of course, the stakes are higher, but once you kind of get on the other side of things, now you're generally in a you know, more balanced place. And that's something I think I'd like to take to my patients, because typically what I will say is, you know, early on, maybe you start out with adult diapers, plus or minus a guard in between, because it's going to be a confidence thing. You don't have exercise, then you're going to sort it out for yourself, you know, thick pads, thin pads. But perhaps I could be a little bit more proactive about counseling for smaller, thinner pads just for the exact reasons that you mentioned. Okay, so you've talked about the kind of comprehensive pelvic floor kegels, and then it sounds like at some point there's a urethral-isolated, sphincter-isolated kegel exercise that you would advise. Is that adequate? So
1: when we start physical therapy for the incontinence after prostate surgery, it's a multi-pronged approach. We have to focus on nutrition, hydration, body mechanics, behavior, and exercise all five factors, and they all have to work together before somebody can become dry. So, yeah, later on, as they are able to control their urine and they drink sufficient water, which is very scary for them, and as their bladder capacity increases, then we start working on isolating the pelvic floor. That is when I start telling them not stopping urine midstream, but I teach them kegels where they can isolate only the front without stopping urine. So there are methods to do it and they are able to comprehend it and they do very well. And then once they are able to isolate the pelvic floor, then they automatically get dry. So say they want to play golf, they don't have to worry about carrying a pad, not drinking water. If I hit a golf ball, I'm going to leak. They don't have to worry about anything. They are back to normal like it was before surgery or they decide I need to uproot this huge tree from the yard. They don't have to worry, what am I going to do? Should I wear a big pad and go? Or if I'm going for a dinner, should I go without a pad? That's very risky because it's like you said, the training wheels or removing when you take a bottle away from a child and give them a sippy cup and a glass. To get them to get away from the diaper to a pad to a smaller pad is quite challenging and If I may, that's where the bladder log comes in. All my patients keep a bladder log. Many don't, but many, many therapy places don't. But I do have them keep a bladder log. The reason being because they can chart the progress. It's objective. See, if you leak or if I leak, whether I leak a tiny pad or I leak a large pad, I'm leaking. So it is like losing a pound of weight. You cannot see initially. But when you lose 15 pounds, you can see. So say you go from two diapers to a heavy pad and then you go to a smaller pad. If you have written it down, it is going to be a frustrating progress. But if you can see, hey, I did, I was wearing two diapers. I'm down to a small pad. So yes, I have progressed, though it doesn't seem so. And that feedback is important to the patient. Otherwise, they just quit therapy. They're like, I'm not going to do this. But when you keep their own paper in front of them and you say, look at this, then they're like, oh, yeah, I have made progress. So they don't get discouraged because it is a very frustrating experience. The self-esteem goes. They are like, I'm going to be in diapers all my life. And there are several consequences of leaking.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think the whole cancer journey is a very dynamic process. I mean, early on, patient may say, oh my goodness, the margins are negative, the nodes are negative, doc, you saved my life. Like, it doesn't matter if I leak eight gallons for the rest of my life, I'm so grateful. Then three months later, they're like, you know, I'm still using a pad a day and how long is this gonna last? And, you know, by all means, (laughs) that's very understandable. It's just, you're getting used to your new life, your new normal, and your mindset's changed from, I'm just glad that I've made it through surgery, I'm cancer-free all that to now it's like, you know, when am I going to have erections? When am I going to have full control again? And by all means, that's absolutely what's important to the patient. But reminding them that, hey, just remember 12 weeks ago you were wearing a Depends. Correct. Every every time I think that would be empowering to the patient as well, that they're making progress and that this isn't futile. I'm actually telling my patients, you know, I just set the expectation. You know, once the catheter comes out, you're going to leak. It's going to get better. It's going to take time to get better. And despite saying that, I think everybody kind of feels that that's not going to apply to them, that they're either going to be better from like time point zero or they're destined to be leaking for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So I I think I absolutely kind of appreciate that this is a multi-pronged approach. And one of the things that I've also found to be of value, particularly in patients who have, you could say spasms of the pelvic floor or pelvic floor dysfunction is, you know, more. I don't know if invasive is the word, but assessments such as contractually scar tissue assessment and things along those lines. Can you speak to that a bit, please?
1: Right. So I'm glad you brought that up. So what happens is that once the prostatectomy is done, what happens is some people have a lot of pain. Obviously, the pudendal nerve is over there. So some people have a severe amount of pain. And if that pain is not addressed, they will continue leaking. Because it's not always because of scar tissue. It is because when it's that painful, everything is in a spasm. When everything is in a spasm, then of course, chronic contraction causes chronic fatigue. And chronic fatigue leads to weakness. So then they leak anyway. So that is why the initial assessment and the therapist has to really know what she's doing. It is not just like women do your Kegel and go home. If the patient has pain after surgery, bladder spasms, which are very common, we have to teach them how to relax the pelvic floor, which is down training, which we talked about initially. So first we down train it, teach them how to control the pain. You obviously, the doctor's side, they give the anticholinergics and you give them, you know, like bladder relaxants and all. And our side, we have to teach them pelvic floor relaxation exercise which gets them all head up because they are told to do Kegel, Kegel, and more Kegel. They're like, when am I doing the Kegel? When your pain's gone and you don't leak in the night, that's when you'll do it. And then if they still have leakage, then we look at scar tissue much more. Mm-hmm. That, yes, there's something more going on. And that is why we have an average outcome. So from the time of therapy to 10 weeks, by that time, most 98 Percent of the people should be dry completely. By completely means zero pad back to normal. If it goes beyond, then we have to look at okay, what is going on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Some have scar tissue, they have to come back, they have to go through a cystoscopy, remove the scar tissue. Some continue to have bladder spasms, and before I forget it, constipation plays a huge role in leakage, as does back pain. If those are not addressed simultaneously, that patient is going to leak.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: or have pain because the whole area is so full of nerves. Right. So unless you kind of treat the person as a complete person, back pain, constipation, not like crazy exercises, but simple exercises to alleviate the back pain, simple uh, ways to alleviate constipation, relaxation, then the outcome is 100%. So uh, as you can see, a lot goes into pelvic floor therapy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I can appreciate that it's more than just do kegels until you're blue in the face. But I think you've really kind of highlighted the holistic and almost multi-system approach to it. You know, The mental component, the breathing component, the back pain, the pelvic pain, potentially constipation, that there's so many facets of this that are actually contributing to incontinence. And I think that's very, very valuable. Now, the down training, can you talk a little bit about that in detail? Is that also going to be really trying to dial in into the muscles and reversing that sensation of chronic contraction?
1: Right. So what happens is that some people, when they have pain or just when they're some people strong arm, you know, some men, they strong arm, the pelvic floor muscles. So they hold it tight all the time. So then what happens is because they hold it tight all the time. It's like if you have heard about a child who's a bedwetter, all day they don't pee. But at night, no matter what, they keep peeing because their muscle has reached an endpoint where it won't work anymore. And that is what is happening with these people. So what I tell them to do is kind of, you know, sit in a butterfly position, knees apart, feet together like a lotus position. Because that position is conducive to relaxing the pelvic floor. If the pelvic floor is lengthened, it relaxes. When it relaxes, then it calms down and it can regroup to close the gap. So what I tell them to do is blow out, blow out, belly out. So like you're blowing a candle or you're blowing a balloon. When you do that movement, your belly comes out, but your pelvic floor relaxes. So initially you start with relaxation. And they see in the bladder log that once they do this relaxation, their leakage is less. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I went from 10 diapers to six. I'm just giving you an example. Being in the Space Coast, where there are a lot of engineers, if the doctors tell them do 150 kegels, they'll do 300 and they'll hold each for a count of 10. Mm -hmm. So I have to have them do relaxation exercise for a whole week. And then from seven, eight, 10 diapers, they're it's straight away in a week, they've gone to half the number of diapers. And they are like, well, I never knew. No, you did. The instructions are right there from the doctor's office too. Only do so many kegels. You decided to do more. Yeah. But again, they forget a lot, right? Whatever the doctor sees, they forget everything because it's overwhelming. Not because they want to. They're going through a lot. So then we do down training and it has to be done several times a day. They have to be cognitive of the fact that, they have to relax the pelvic floor because if they hold, they're going to leak. And I want to bring up one thing, Aditya, and this is me, okay? So a lot of people who undergo prostate surgery, they have had BPH. And because they've had BPH, what have they been doing? They have been tightening the pelvic floor and relaxing to get the stream out so that they don't go to the bathroom frequently. Now after surgery, the moment they tighten, the behavior has been established. It's a muscle memory. You tighten your pelvic floor, urine is going to gush out. You have to reverse that behavior. See, they don't think of these things. The brain already knows, tighten pelvic floor, release, leak. I'm trying to reverse it. Tighten the pelvic floor and not leak. You see how it works?
0: Absolutely. So the first thing I just wanted to ask, so you mentioned the forgetting. And, you know, by all means, we go through this preoperatively. And then I have to imagine that they're just so focused on their cancer diagnosis, am I going to live or not, that, you know, erections and incontinence are somewhat distant. And then the day of discharge, you kind of talk to them about X, Y, and Z, and they're just focused on being scared about being home now without the support and the nurses and the techs and the physicians. And I guess that brings me to, you know, resources, pamphlets, handout, videos, educational material, you know, by all means, I'll be directing my patients receiving prostatectomy to this podcast to say, hey, here's some just global insight. But do you have some resources that you think are, you know, high quality that you typically share with patients?
1: Yeah. So I have my own book, as you know, which talks about pre and post surgery. It goes through every bit of training from the start to the finish. That book is there, but also Sometimes we'll do Zoom calls pre-surgically with patients and with screen sharing, go through uh, what body mechanics to follow, how to take care of the catheter, what happens if you have these issues, how to carry the catheter with you, what if you have bladder retention, what if your stomach starts hurting a lot, what if you have a lot of gas, how do you have bowel movements, if you don't have a bowel movement, because after they go home, these are the issues they face they are very constipated, they are very bloated, sometimes they are like really miserable and if they know, okay, before surgery if they know, hey, it may cause bloating of the stomach, you may have constipation, ask your doctor for collase or whatever medication they want to give you to relieve the constipation and then also about pain. Some men are like, I'm very strong, I don't take these stupid medications. No, you have to take medications and if you don't want the strong one, Ask for the over-the-counter and take that frequently. So then we talk about that, how to change the catheter, what precautions to follow, what if you have a temperature. One of my pet peeves is, and I have tried for years and years and years, is that the whole program of pelvic floor therapy is very unstructured or radical prostatectomy is very unstructured. They need to be components in place, and I know it's not my place to talk about it, but If a woman has had breast cancer, she already has a wig guy, she's got a plastic surgeon guy, she's got people on the phone, there are 100 people helping her. The man has a surgery and then he's like, okay, let me go look on Google because he won't talk to anybody, unlike a woman. So if they had like a proper structured program across the nation, it would be much more beneficial to them. But for anybody who wants, my book is available. I've got two books on Amazon. I've got a 10-week video course on teachable.com where it goes through all the exercises, how to overcome and be completely dry in 10 weeks. And I am available for Zoom consultations over the phone or any FaceTime or anything before surgery so they know what to do. As far as other resources, I'm not really aware of it. There are some surgeons who are really awesome. They give a proper pamphlet. Tell the patient you're going to leak, you're going to have ED. There are some who are like, I'm sorry, you're better. So it just is different people. But I think a national structure would be really great.
0: Yeah. I mean, we have enhanced recovery after surgery pathways for, you could say, some of the more complex surgeries like cystectomies, where you're seeing a nutrition counselor, you're seeing a smoking cessation counselor, kind of the whole affair. And I totally agree with you. Sometimes I feel like people think that you know the surgery a prostatectomy is so routine i mean you mentioned working with Dr Patel who's you know a whiz and does 10 of these a day but that you know in the same breath it's a major disruption it's a major recalibration and you know putting the support groups putting in you know the the mental health the anxiety the nutrition all of that is quite critical so a certain like vision has kind of kept on popping up in my head as we've had this conversation and that's like of a high quality golfer, you know, Tiger Woods. Golfing isn't just getting out there and practicing your swing 6,000 times a day. It's mentally being focused. It's physically feeling fit. It's being relaxed. It's not the harder you swing, the better you do. It's the whole body mechanics. And and much of what you're describing beneath actually kind of fits in that analogy for me. And maybe I could ask you, well, I have a couple of practical questions before I ask you to kind of give your holistic summary approach to this. So let's just say, again, I've booked a patient for a prostatectomy and it's going to be on September 7th, two months from now. If I referred that patient to see a pelvic floor physical therapist pre-surgery, would that be covered by insurance as far as you know?
1: Yes. Insurance does cover it because it's a muscle, the pelvic floor, the bladder is a muscle. Both are muscles. What we have to be careful about is that they are only allowed so many sessions of therapy. So if, say, go, they go to a place and they're like, oh, just finish all your sessions before surgery, then the person is leaking after surgery. And that is why we restrict because before surgery, people really don't need that much. So restrict it to one or two before surgery. And then after surgery, focus on several sessions. Insurance covers it. Almost, I think, all the insurances cover it. Some people pay out of pocket.
0: Yeah, postoperatively, I've never had an issue. I was just kind of curious for myself, you know, preoperatively, what that kind of looks like.
1: Because they do have other factors like urgency, frequency, muscle strength, you know, decreased muscle strength. So they do have those issues.
0: Well, you know, by all means, I've, I've been blessed to work with just lights out pelvic floor physical therapists. We focused our talk today on urinary incontinence, post prostatectomy, but for chronic, chronic pelvic pain, the whole kind of gamut of symptoms that both men and women experience. And, you know, it's glaringly obvious to me that you spent a lot of time thinking about this, honing your craft and really putting together kind of a comprehensive 360 degree approach to incontinence. And, you know, as we approach an hour, Vinita, maybe I would just ask for you any parting thoughts from your end when you're, you know, either for providers or patients as they're going through their prostate cancer journey.
1: Okay. So like you said, it is very crucial that they see a therapist before surgery. Because then they can kind of work on increasing their, you know, like behavior strategies, improving their nutrition and hydration. Because see, if they're used to sodas, you have to tell them how to decrease that. You cannot cold turkey tell a person, don't drink soda. So a few weeks earlier, you can give them strategies so that they can start reducing the soda and start increasing the water intake. Same with the foods. And one thing I tell them is that after surgery, you f- externally you feel great. You know, you feel normal. The wounds are small. It's robotic. You feel like a new person. But the inside, the pelvic floor, everything is messed up. It is not healed. It is going to take several weeks to heal, at least six. So, say a person decides, oh, I'm feeling fine. I'm going to sit on the bicycle in three weeks. You're going to end up leaking because you are hurting something which is not healed. Internally, not talking about externally, internally. So they do have to follow some basic post-surgical precautions several weeks after surgery, at least six, till the healing is complete. Much as they want to hike, much as they want to do canoeing, much as they want to put up shutters or whatever they want to do, it has to be re-emphasized to them that this is a major surgery. It is not a minor surgery. Then the second part is about leakage. Yes, you will recover. And there are ways and means to recover for whatever reason. If you cannot recover through therapy, there's UroLift, there's, you know, the other artificial sphincters. There are several other options. It's not like you're at the end of the world. The third thing we do talk about here is erectile dysfunction ahead of time. I do teach my patients, not physically, but I I show them uh, via pictures how to use the pump, the VED pump. Because that's the other thing, they don't know. They go on YouTube, they have no idea what they're doing. So to teach them how to get a proper sealant, how to work with it, which let me tell you, Aditya, I have been trained by my patients because I didn't go through this. They and their wives sat and explained to me what the problems were over the years and that's how I'm able to address so many because I do encourage the wife to be a part of this process or a spouse or a caregiver or anybody. Significant other, somebody has to be for reinforcement and for encouragement. So then we go through that spiral, and then they feel like, okay, this is not the end of my life. I'm not going to take, be taking diapers and be a little, you know, couch potato all my life, carrying diapers through planes and whatnot. And once they see a light at the end of the tunnel, they recover automatically because now they have hope. And once they have hope, they get better.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great. I mean, anybody taking care of people, I feel like we learn so much for, from our patients and and their families about what's important and what works and what doesn't. Well, again, you know, I really appreciate your your thoughtful and candid insights onto helping patients through the process of leakage, which many times does a company, prostatectomy. I'll definitely have some actionable items I can introduce into my counseling on incontinence and you know with that thank you again for your time vanita
1: thank you Aditya, for having me and any of your patients want to text me also because they do they text me from all around the country and they're like what am i going to do this that they are welcome to because as you can see this is my primary passion it is not the money it is getting a person okay so they feel happy
0: perfect thank you With support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Ishan Sangwan And
1: Medavi Putwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Deng.
0: Thanks again for listening and see you next week.